You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 142 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers and research of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I'm joined by my co-host, Connor Johnnan. David will probably end up joining us. He's taking a little <laughs> nappy poo at the moment. Probably slept through his alarm clock, as is tradition. And as so uh, what we decided, we're going to continue on, and he'll just, you know, casually insert himself halfway through the interview as also is tradition uh, but we want to apologize for taking a break i know we started off by saying we're back in business and then uh life life slapped us in the face with other other things going on once once again but we are back to continue on our series on theory in uh american anthropology yeah, oh, we so we finished last time talking about Boaz and getting to Boaz and that fun little journey. And we are going to now take the next step and talk about basically the students of Boaz. So moving on from there. Absolutely. And just a quick recap. Franz Uri Boaz, uh, German-American anthropologist, father of American anthropology. Of Papa Boaz. As Papa an, Boaz, as yep. So he's, he's kind of the guy all... All of our anthropological lineages in some way, shape, or form hit Boaz a couple generations ago. So that's kind of his background, which we talked more on in the last episode. But he sets himself up at Columbia University in 1899, so right at the turn of the 20th century. And he had some pretty significant students who kind of go on to if Franz is like granddaddy Boaz of anthropology he creates like four students who like <laughs> kind of lead each subfield like that kind of yeah. grasp on to this four fields approach and each one of them kind of takes the mantle for their subfield yeah so and Boaz is kind of and his students continue on in this kind of reaction to the times and really starting to change and radically change the thoughts on anthropology. A lot of these students have strong and and um, unique opinions and theories that uh, kind of come out of this era. So it's a continuation of this Boazian um, reaction to racism and things like that. Yes. Guess who texted? Guess who texted us? He said he was passed out. <laughs> oh, he's coming. He's on his way, ladies and gentlemen. Looks like who we could who we could get ahead, of, who we could get in here before uh, before David bumblefucks his way into the episode. So there's there's four students that we, in there at least. Yeah, there's like four students we want to talk about: Margaret Mead, Edward Sapir, Ruth Benedict, and Alfred Krober. Maggie Mead is definitely out of the four, probably the most well known mags mags, mags. Mead. mags <laughs> Maggie Mead. so yeah kind of the champion of cultural anthropology you could say herbert and benedict are the the kind of the progenitors of cultural anthropology out of these yeah four yeah so uh, margaret and ruth are kind of the big they're the cultural anthropologists out of the group more, yeah. more so so she did a lot of her field work in Oceania, specifically Samoa. And before we, she was kind of controversial, especially after death. But she was the, uh, was she the first president of the American Anthropological Association? I'm, I would not be surprised. I, I wouldn't either. But she's in the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. Like she did a bunch of stuff but her big work here that she contributes to right so like boaz puts forth historical particularism so that you need to study the culture and the context in which it was created all cultures are equal we need to stop this ranking bullshit that other folks are trying to do but we have to study a, a culture in its in its context she takes that she being margaret mead and you know one of her most famous pieces of work is coming of age in samoa so she did ethnic she did ethnography lived with uh samoans over several field seasons and you described her as her personality and her field work is kind of the beginning of beginning wave of like feminism right yeah Would you say is like it's a focus on women and their role within cultures more so than we've probably seen in the past Absolutely. So she publishes in 1935, Sex and Temperament in Three Primitive Societies. Don't like the word primitive. We've, we've been past that, uh, hopefully, kind of. Which in this, she's, she's working with a very particular group in Samoa. 
And in this piece, she claims that females are dominant to the men in this society. There are some issues that she kind of describes like most Samoans. This is how it is in their culture. And this is the difference between an ethnography and ethnology, where an ethnography is a study of one particular group and an, an ethnology is the combination of multiple ethnographies into a study. So she was doing a lot of ethnographic research, doing a lot of ethno uh, ethnography. It's not till after her death and there's some controversy that goes on that someone's like, no, 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 and did an eth uh, ethnology together and compared Margaret's work with other people's work that says, no, she was, she was right. There were some instances where she did go a little bit overboard, but what Connor's talking about is she's working in these, with these groups that show that like women aren't naturally inferior to men, that it's a cultural thing. This was a huge shock to American Judeo Christian women and other people in the West. So like she's yeah. bringing out and, and very similar to at the turn of like that we talked about last episode, the age of enlightenment where folks are going out across the world and, and finding cultures coming into contact with cultures that are radically different than their own, bringing them back to their home country. And it kind of stirs things up. And this is what's kind of going on in a repeat cycle where if anthropologists are going out, studying these cultures, bringing this information back to this West, to exposing the West to this kind of information. And so a lot of her work in the thirties and forties is kind of the groundwork for the feminist movement that comes in the sixties and seventies. So really awesome work. Yeah, and she focuses and by highlighting the role of women, the role of development, the role of intimacies between husband and wife. This really changes our kind of our theoretical understanding, or at least focus in anthropology. And David came in at the perfect time. But yeah, so her focus definitely on psychological theory and uh, stuff like that is definitely informs and focuses kind of what she's studying but like carlton said and and we've mentioned before this this is her work and the work of all anthropologists probably in the 1900s isn't without controversy <laughs> i don't think yes. you could say i don't think you could say anyone who was doing ethnographic fieldwork in the 1900s was without some sort of asterisk or something going on that not mars but it it is something that's not perfect I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and Margaret, especially like Margaret was controversial in her time for her behavior outside of academia. But today she would be considered just another modern woman. Like she multiple divorces, like enjoyed her time doing what she wanted and wasn't constrained by like American norms of women during the thirties and twenties, but her behavior is completely acceptable today so she was very much kind of ahead of her time in realizing that uh the the social construct of american culture i guess yeah i mean great work if you like highly recommend like it's foundational for modern cultural anthropology we've built upon the work of, of course but especially stuff that has any sort of psychological theory or later stuff um is definitely built and building off of that yeah. And like the controversies didn't appear till after her death. And so like a lot of this stuff happened in like the nineties is when a lot yeah. of these articles were trying to like shame her. But a lot of folks were like, no, you're being a dick, you know, like you're, you're going after her way too hard. Yeah. But she was just one of four. Do we want to talk about Sapir real quick? Yeah, I think he's an interesting one. We can drop, jump into linguistic anthropology. So Edward Sapir, you've heard his name, but you probably won't recognize it, associated with the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, talking about the relationship between language and culture. Um, he is also a student of Boaz. I will look up exactly where he went to school. It was also at Columbia. So all these students went to uh, to Columbia under, under Boaz and Sapir. So like the difference between linguistic anthropology and linguistics is linguistics is the study of language for linguistic anthropology, the study of how language affects culture. So the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which is a joint hypothesis by Edward Sapir and person by the last name of Whorf and who's named like absolutely eludes me all of a sudden. Yeah, I don't know. And so it made a brief appearance. Like they, they name dropped the Wharf Sapir hypothesis. Benley Wharf. Benley Wharf. Ben, in, in a, Benjamin. In a yeah. 
And that's kind of like the crux of that movie is like learning that language and how circular it is allowed her to travel back in time. Yeah, kind of kind of a little ridiculous. But Warf Linguistic Anthropologist did a lot of work on uh, North American Indian languages, especially in California. He worked with Ishii, which mm-hmm. is one of those big uh, living time capsules, I guess, is the best way to describe Ishii. We've talked about him before on the podcast. So he's kind of really the father of, of linguistic anthropology. So a lot of the stuff that he did is foundational for linguistic anthropology today and really speak and, and kind of on uh, American Indian languages and the classification of Indian indigenous languages of America is, is the big one. So he's the one that really helped guide the language groups and families that are still being worked on today, but he was really the one to, in order to do that, right? Like there's over 500 recognized tribes in the United States alone, but to be able to cull all that information and to, and with a team to figure out which ones are similar enough and develop language families is a colossal fucking task. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So at least beginning that task and beginning that process is a huge step for linguistic anthropology, at least for our understanding of cultures and, and languages in North America. So that's that's where you see your boy Sapir. And we actually defining the Sapir war hypothesis just is that language affects culture, right? And yep. Culture affects language and there's a relationship between the two. Yes. I think that's. That's the basics of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Agreed. So he did some cool stuff. Do you want to do Krober while we're here? Because I know yeah, Krober worked with. We can do some Krober. Let's do yeah. some Krober. So also another cultural anthropologist under France at Columbia. All these folks were really talking. These people were born late 1800s, early 1900s and died midway through the century. You know, this is the kind of time frame that we're talking about here. You know, Krober is from Hoboken, New Jersey. And he did a lot of his career at California. So, like a lot of these folks, like get their degree at Columbia, and they they where is Columbia? Chris had New York out. City. Okay, that's what I thought. So, a lot of these folks get trained at Columbia, like in the East Coast, and they end up working in, in California for some reason or another. But he was also pretty big into archaeology. So, even though he's like primarily a cultural anthropologist, he was also an archaeologist, and also dabbled in linguistics. Like a lot of those early folks were Fourfields anthropologists and really trying to use cultural anthropology in, into these other subfields. He did the handbook of Indians of California. That was a big one. And he, his big thing is the development of a culture area. So this is where we get the idea of like Southwest archaeology, Great Plains archaeology and the subfield. So that was kind of his big control, like his contribution is recognizing that there are these cultural areas that are bounded by material culture, which is, pottery styles, projectile point typology, settlement patterns. So he's the one that was able to kind of identify those relationships. Now, a lot of these things are geographically bounded at times, but there are definitely exceptions to that rule. So that's really his big idea. So like all the different, you know, we have Southeast Archaeology Conference, Midwest, a lot of that kind of stems from his early work in these culture area approaches. Yeah, and that's it's kind of building off the the Boazian idea that you need to study cultures and their areas, so the proximity matters, and you have similar cultures that occur in the past, and can draw not hard boundaries but soft boundaries along along a lot of these places. So that's something that this culture area concept continues in archaeology and is still used today and is still mentioned today, although we understand and acknowledge that the boundaries are not real their constructions and things are very fluid through time and space. So he, he sets us on that path and we still generally call things and describe regions in a way um, based on the Kroeber culture area. But we have certainly expanded upon and are more complex in how we understand people in the past. Yeah. And then the last major student is Ruth Benedict. Once again, more definitely more firmly rooted in cultural anthropology, but also in folklore. Yeah, I just saw that. Didn't you? Didn't you write a sweet meme about how folklore? Or I don't get folklore. <laughs> folklore seems cool. It just, but I like getting to know folklorists. It just looks like lazy anthropology or history. It's like if you don't want to do the real work, you go to folklore, where it's like. But it, it's mostly this uh, folklore can be cool, but it's also I don't know. It kind of comes off as degrading because folklorists work in like. European fairy tales like Cinderella and stuff like that. And then they try to bring that kind of research to American Indian like mythologies. And it's like, stay in your fucking lane and don't equate our shit with 
Cinderella or Snow White. Like you don't have the training to do that. Like you're going to just you being a folklorist going in and like treating our stuff like folklorist is demeaning. Uh, But they also do stuff like out here in Appalachia with like rural communities and like, I don't know, but I also don't know much about folklore. Come at me with your hate. I don't, I don't care. DM Carlton. uh, Don't DM the podcast because DM Carlton directly. But yeah, I thought we were supposed to DM. It's Derek Anderson. All of our hate goes to Derek Anderson. Derek A. Derek G. No, not David. It's the one that Shane kept talking about. It's like Derek T. Anderson. T stands for tyrannical Tyler. (laughs) Okay. So Ruth, Ruth focuses on the relationship between the individual and society and this interplay between them and cultural identity and how beliefs govern culture's behavior. So it's, it's this kind of really complex relationship that she's studying uh, that I don't think anyone's really tried to talk to talk about before because there is a relationship between the individual and culture and a group culture. So it's, it's pretty revolutionary. Yeah. Great friends with Margaret Mead. They were close. Uh, Ruth's big work was patterns of culture in which kind of like ascribes culture, like an individual. It's kind of a personality is what a culture is. Like it's a group of individuals, personalities, and it's a consistent pattern of thought, like really cool stuff. Definitely delves very much into cultural relativism works. Also did work in new Guinea with, uh, Maggie Mead worked primarily in New Mexico, Pacific Northwest, uh, Pueblo and kind of stuff. So, so she did you either go to that. either go to California or you go to the <laughs> the Southeast Asia if you're a yeah. Carver student. But I think that's your two options. Or Absolutely. you're a US student. Sorry. If you've kind of noticed, we haven't hit a bio, biological anthropologist. Well, this time it's been physical anthropology, and that's that's primarily because even though they're pushing this four fields approach, bioanthropology is still very much uh, dicey subject at the time. <laughs> That and, that and they're mostly like physicians. You actually have to have a medical degree. So it's a lot of doctors mm-hmm. and physicians who are practicing because they know the skeleton, like they have the anatomy and they kind of like do anthropology as a, as a side project. And in America, it's like a lot of craniomorphology. Like it's a lot of like race science. So the other three fields are like trying to be like cultural relativism and the bioanthropologists are like, and this is why black folks need to drink from a water fountain, their nasal cavities too, but just like making shit up. Yeah, yeah, it's not. Technology is the land. The land. Yeah. yeah, it's just like goofy stuff, and it um, like my favorite scene of that whole of well, one of my favorite scenes of Django Unchained is when uh, Mr. Kennedy is like talk has the skull of one of his former enslaved individuals and shows because the the skull is shaped this way, he's an idiot and breaks the skull, and the dude played by uh, what's his face, Leo Dio. No, not Dio, not Leo. Um, Samuel Jackson. No, 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 the bounty hunter. Oh, Christoph oh, uh, Waltz. Yes. When he comes back and is like, you know, Mr. Kent, like, this is the whole idea of the plantation. It's based off of Three Musketeers. He's like, you know, the guy that wrote Three, Musk- Three Musketeers, your favorite book, what this whole plantation is based off of. The dude was black. You're a fucking moron. And then proceeds to shoot him. You know, that's essentially phrenology and cranial morphology and the crux. It's just, it's not to say that there's biological consequences of morphology of some things but culturally doesn't affect much like brain size doesn't affect intelligence yeah but that's that was the prevailing thought at the time and these these students of boaz are like yeah nah fuck that and are actively fighting against it but you know we'll say that the the bio anth or the physical anth folks you know come around it takes you know nazi germany to really get them uh focused and back on to studying humans in a, in a nicer way. Most of the time. Yeah. Still do. And I think in the thirties and before that in Germany, like a lot of scientists had defected and came to the States or to, you know, England or um, elsewhere. A lot of Europeans went down to South America. That's a different story. They uh, had like, there was some prevailing science overseas that wasn't, you know, the best and like a lot of them came over here and Boaz obviously being a, a Jewish German himself came over here and was like, you know, taking calipers and measuring people's skulls wasn't the greatest kind of science. And he, he kind of saw that, but I think he also did some cranial metric stuff too in the, in the beginning, but I don't think it was to drive like race type. Um, so I can't remember if Boaz did or didn't, he has something to do with it. Yeah. But he came out here in like the late 1800s, like really before the, yeah, well that's third right. 
popped a lot of people started coming if they had the money to i guess is where i'm going with that um but like later on like oppenheimer and all those people started leaving like you know yeah at the yeah like when shit was hitting the fan um but point being a lot of scientists came over here and boaz like in the late 1800s was one of those which is why boaz is coming on like the huge tail end of the darwinian synthesis as well um which is why like you know, we have this new found way of looking at science because you have the Enlightenment and then that kind of pushes towards yada yada and then Darwin comes around and we have this, oh, pushing towards evolutionism and things in, in science. And a lot of like the cultural evolutionism at the time was not, that was also a predominant thought among anthropologists, but Boaz being like, well, we shouldn't look at everything this way. And that's where he kind of was profound in saying like cultures don't evolve the same way though like there is evolution like affecting humanity in many ways and it's not unilineal it's you know it's different ways so i think on that note we're going to come back in the second segment and we'll dive into more specifically archaeology and the early 20th century and welcome back to episode 142 of life roads podcast so we're going to delve into more strictly archaeological theory at this point because we're archaeologists and that's what our listeners want to hear so Next up, we wanted to talk about V. Gordon Child. The V stands for Ver, V-E-R-E. V-E-R-E. Australian archaeologist, comes from an English family, studied really uh, European prehistory. And the reason why he's, he's big is he's an early proponent of the culture historical approach, which was really the first scientific analysis of the archaeological record trying to find the culture histories of a geographic region so starting from the top and figuring out all the cultures below and creating a synthesis of what came from before we now know today because like early in this correct me if i'm wrong they didn't give much leeway for migration or like other forms of change that basically like the cultures that ended up in the place you investigate are the absolute descendants of the earliest cultures that were there. That's my assessment of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's comes from the culture area concept, the bounding of it, that they've been there for forever. I mean, but like as to be fair to them, how do you understand movement in the past? If you can barely understand what's beneath the ground. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, they knew that Rome came from Italy and kind of spread out other places, so they had a general idea. But yeah, but North America is like this whole new thing. Yeah, whole ball game of people that grow corn. But this culture history thing does come out of Krober, does come out of that kind of area. Like it's, yeah, it's important to study things and in a more scientific manner as well. And that comes yeah. along with seriation, chronology, stratigraphy. All those things are scientific pursuits to understand what has happened in an area in the past. And it's like we needed that because like all of these students of culture of the culture historical approach went out and basically doc like did vertical excavations in the earth, figured out all mostly not all clearly, but they like went in to figure out what cultures and how deep they are in a landscape. And granted, they try to tie them all into each other, but it kind of like set the record for archaeologists later that we'll get into that will be like, no, 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 this is radically different than what's before. This came from somewhere else. So they kind of set the stage for the compare and contrast, which comes later that a lot more like archaeological theory and method interpretations built off of because they went in to basically look for everything in the earth and where it's at. So it's kind of needed. And that's kind of, we've, we've talked about this in several episodes. Like a lot of the, basic categorizations that are being done both in like cultural evolution, archaeology, and these other things, or there's these broad sweeping categories to try to place people as we get further in time. And as the theory and method further developed, we start seeing the breakdown of those and the reshuffling, but it's all based on these early categorizations that give us the ability to compare and contrast one another as we become like way more systemic in our approaches in archaeology. He also is like one of definitely one of the earliest known practitioners of experimental archaeology so he got his experiments to basically test a bunch of stuff and recreate it so one of the big ones in like in 1937 him and his students used experimental archaeology to investigate the vitrification process that's evident at several iron age forts so he was like actually went to go with the students to go ground test things so big big 
thing here is the cultural historical approach. Although he wasn't very dogmatic, like as theories and methods evolved around him, he kind of would incorporate them. So he didn't get like stuck in cultural history. He ends up getting some like Marxist stuff thrown in with his work later in life. Same with the functionalism, functionalist approaches. So he's able to like, as archaeology is changing around him, incorporating more of it and, and changing his, his views into his work. Yeah. And like Carlton said that the important thing is that he is actually wanting to categorize things and catalog things vertically, which is the way I would go. If I was going into somewhere, I didn't know anything about, you know, you got to establish a chronology. You have to uh-huh. understand how things change through time. So this is, he's building the foundation of the future archeology span by at least using methods that are something we can use in the future. Yeah, like we know that the Southeast looks a certain way culturally versus, you know, the Great Basin. Yeah, so that's kind of building off of Krober's cultural areas and, and putting it in time as well as as well as space. Um, but he was also big on, he divided, he's the one that helped divide the Stone Age into Paleolithic, Neolithic, and Mesolithic. So he oh. took the Stone Age, Iron Age, Copper Age, whatever, and then broke Stone Age up even further. Which was Solon's, no, sorry, Solon's did bands, kingdoms, tribes, chiefdoms. Bands, tribes, chiefdom, states with Solon's, yeah. Um, Which was before or after this? After. Okay. That's like in the 60s. Uh, right. Answer, uh, what is a chiefdom, please? Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Uh, um, and then he was also big on the urban revolution and the Neolithic. So he really kind of looked at changes in time, like those critical transformations in time. That's another one of his his big ones, this idea of the urban revolution. As this is all kind of going around, especially especially in the early 20th century, we start getting into how culture, the cultural historical process and cultural areas, some archaeologists in certain countries are starting to develop like nationalist archaeology around this time. So like we start seeing Marxist archaeology pretty early on. It's kind of in a lot of archaeological theory today might not be explicit, but that's where we get national archaeology. And one of the biggest proponents of national archaeology during this time was Soviet archaeology. So these are like radical Marxists, which is fine, but they start like in Indiana Jones, how the Nazis are trying to use archaeology to promote German superiority. The Soviet archaeologists were doing the same thing. It's really big today in Southeast Asia and in particularly China. China is a really good modern day example of nationalist archaeology where they're always finding the earliest hominid or the earliest evidence of agriculture or the earliest forms of communism. Like it it really kind of sucks to try to be an archaeologist outside the China and try to work there because you have to abide by Maoist doctrine. Like you can't promote or publish things that go against the communist agenda or else you get blackballed from the country. Or if you promote those things inside the country, you disappear. Yeah. You also see this in the Middle East when ISIS was happening, was occurring and destroying artifacts of the past because it didn't agree with their ideology. I mean, archaeology and anthropology is weaponized, at least in the modern day and in the past. Um, obviously, in in Nazi Germany, that was a big thing is Hitler is yeah. collecting a bunch of archaeology and art and stuff like that and trying to kind of tie the archaeology of the area to his kind of nationalist propaganda and his his domination of the world or his justification for domination of the world. Yeah. Looking for Aryans was basically what he was doing. Who was, it was Himmler. Himmler was a huge archaeology freak and like they funded a shitload of archaeological expeditions. And the issue also with that is like in order to be an archaeologist in Nazi Germany, you had to be part of the Nazi party. Like no, if really? about it. yeah, you had to. It's like there was huh. no, like it was kind of like very much similar to Soviet the Soviet Union. In order to do anything, you had to be a member of the party. Well, that's um, why a lot of scientists bailed. Yes, yeah. they tried, and they got a lot of funding to go out, especially like Nepal, Tibet. They went to go look for the Aryans. Like it was. There's video footage of that stuff too, like them using calipers on people and they're just like, next. It's just like, what are you doing? Yeah, doing a lot of phrenology out there. Yes, their nose is a little bit curved on this side, yeah, but they are not the Aryans. Yeah. Like, what are they trying to, like, do? Because <laughs> I think everyone knew. That, well, I think at that time people knew that there was Aryans at some point in time were from Central Asia. 
Like, I the think the Caucasus Mountains is that the, the Caucasus? Yeah. No, the a little Caucasus. bit further east. Because I, I think I'm pretty sure at this point everyone knew about the Hindo Aryan or that whole idea. Indo Aryan expansion. Indo Aryan, yeah. and so they were looking to tie Germany directly to those Aryans that conquered India, and then like moved west and like the Sea People of the Mountains that destroyed the Bronze Age for the Mediterranean. The Indo Aryans were this group that came out of the north and just fuck things up in central asia gotcha yeah because like germans themselves are like very varied people like not all of them are blonde haired and blue eyed so like i guess he was just trying to see like what i i can't remember i don't it was a long time ago we learned about this but yeah um what features he was looking for or whatever and because i remember the footage it's definitely in asia where he's like doing all that caliper stuff yeah um wasn't great but there's still a lot of vestiges today no. like even we still have like white nationalist archaeology here in the States. I don't know if it would be considered archaeology because they're not actually doing it, but you still see like vestiges of this idea, uh, like white nationalism, particularly in the U S like adopts a lot of this shit to try yeah. to promote like Salutrian gets co-opted into this where they try to like so. point to Dennis Stanford to be like, look, there were white people in the Americas before anyone else and native Americans killed them. And so us killing native Americans is justified because it used to be white people. And they just like ignored the fact that everyone's like, well, even if Salutrians did do that, they weren't white. Like they weren't just, they're not the ancestors of modern day Europeans. That was prior to the Indo Aryan <laughs> expansion, you know, yeah. like very much cherry picking of, of topics. Yeah. It's not great. When you were in Ukraine, did you see any, uh, vestiges of marks or that kind of area archaeology oh, being oh, yes, done I did. yes i did carter so one one of the vestiges of this nationalist approach in order to get a phd in the soviet system in archaeology you had to discover a new culture like in order to get a phd you had to do something that was like worthy of a phd it wasn't just a disc it's like you had to discover a new culture and it had to be tied some way shape or form so uh do you think there's an abundances of cultures in, in the old Soviet Republic if that was the only way to get your PhD? Let me guess. Yet. <laughs> the answer is yes. There's a shitload. So like uh, my colleagues that work there now, like uh, Dimitro and others, like they basically have spent their work and now analyzing other people's PhD dissertations to basically like, no, this is one culture. Because they'd like hyper fixate on the differences of like a pottery style like well this one has a triangle in it so it's a completely different culture so but it wouldn't be a subgroup or subphase it's like completely different so they have an overabundance of what the fuck's going on in their record so they've kind of had like go back and realize or synthesize synthesize a lot of it to actually figure out the culture areas that are going on and it's it's the work is progressing but uh -huh. I did see a lot of shovels. I mean, it was a very, I mean, I, we've talked about in this podcast, there's a lot of kids moving dirt very rapidly. That's interesting. Yeah. It's because uh, you have to use that data that was, or you want to use the data that was taken during that time, because if they dug up a site that is important to what you're studying during yep. that time, you would like to use that, but you have to put it into context of what was happening and hopefully give it a different spin or research something differently. Yeah. Um, and also like want to say like national archaeology isn't just to like, uh, you know, Soviets, like the British were pretty big into nationalist archaeology too, in a way, like they had a really hard time. Yeah. It, Piltdown, yeah. man. Piltdown. <laughs> yeah. Piltdown's an example of like someone created a hoax to show like the earliest people were in like pe bipedal people were big brain people were in Britain like massive hoax. But there's also, who was that explorer that traveled the Amazon? Was that the, not, not World War Z, what's the other one? Oh, the oh. city of Z, the lost city what's of the... Z. Zed? Is yeah. Is that, that the guy? I think so. Is it geography? Yes, Percy it is. Fawcett. Yeah, Percy yeah. Fawcett. Yeah. So he went under the Royal Geographic Society to go discover things in the Amazon. They made an Amazon film about it that features Jax Teller from... Sons of Anarchy. I forget his name. And he was able to he find was like, sweating like a faucet in the Amazon. One hundred percent, David. Um, and uh, I got a clap from Connie. <laughs> he found pottery in the Amazon and cultures that were what we'd consider "quote unquote" complex, more complex than what, like contemporary Amazonian tribes. Brought back to England, I was like, "There's evidence of culture here and roads and all this other stuff, and we're just ignoring it. It could even predate English civilization." And they threw a fucking fit about it 
British archaeologists were not very happy. They weren't very accepting of data coming outside of the UK that showed complex culture, especially in Africa. Like Great Zimbabwe is a really good example yeah. of, of that dismissal. I mean, you still see, I would say in modern archaeology, you still see factions of people in groups. Oh, like yeah. The I, Mormons in Utah. If like you want to yeah. do archaeology in Utah, if it ain't Mormon, they do not care. That is for damn sure. And I'll go on record like the, the Mormon stuff always protected. But if it's if it's engine, it's gone. They want to erase yeah. it. Yeah. So there, there's still a little bit of there. I think there are always going to be a tie to like nationalism in the past and, you know, in archaeology. We're trying to get rid of it, but there's always going to be pieces of it, unfortunately. And we've shown like people do that, have done that in the past, right? Like they'll bury their dead in their house to like show they've been there. So like archaeology does get co-opted a lot to like prove ancestry to a region, a place or to ideologies. It's just the modern form of like burying grandma underneath the floorboards. Like, no, 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 that's my grandmother. We've always lived here. It's now just like, oh, well, this culture shows why the Crocs sandals people should dominate florida i don't fucking know that's just out of my head but there's there's they ways to dominate florida yeah and then i mean it it cultures do it or countries do it all the time you know israel palestine and others are always fighting over jerusalem for nationalist archaeology purposes it happens yeah. it's not great but it is what it is. Now that we pissed off all the world, um, we're going to end this segment and we'll come back and talk about Daddy Benford. I don't know what, what we call him, Papa Lou. Probably Uncle Lou. I don't want to. I don't want Uncle him to be Lou. my dad, but I'm okay to be like related to him. Like that's like Uncle Lou. He's, He's our just, angry uncle. The angry uncle. Yes, <laughs> the angry drunk uncle. Uh, the stories Bob <laughs> Kelly has about him are just phenomenal. All right, we'll be right back. Give and me something for the pay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Welcome back to episode 142 of Life on Roads podcast featuring uh, Robert Baratheon. No. Um, so to. to- <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, Let's just start from the start over. This is fine. This, this is, is great. No, this is, our, this our, is- we need to keep the wine in because me and Carlton did it at the exact same time and it was beautiful. <laughs> this is absolutely fine. So to, to top off uh, today's episode, looking at archaeological theory, we're really going to kind of stop here in the mid 20th century, kind of moving beyond the uh, culture historical approach here. We have a guy that not many people in archaeology know about unless you've taken an archaeological theory course, really. And that's uh, Walter Taylor. He got his PhD in the 40s. Like they kind of pushed him through because he wanted to go fight Krauts, came back. And his his big idea, which he was he was right, was that the culture historical approach was wrong. Uh, however, the way he went about telling people it was wrong wasn't the best. And what I mean by that is that he didn't have proof. Like like he his his piece called A Study of Archaeology broke down why culture historical approach was wrong and came up with this idea of how we can better analyze the archaeological record, but he didn't have proof or evidence to support it. And he went after a bunch of like top American archaeologists at his time, such as A.V. Kidder, Emil Howery, Frank Roberts Jr., William Webb, William Ritchie, and James B. Griffin. And he like also calls out the Carnegie Institute. So here's this like young upstart who just got back from World War II, probably like not super thrilled to have a bunch of like white collar academics yelling at him after he went and just fought Nazis while he stood at home. So I think there's probably a little bit of that going on. Probably some PTSD. Just a tinge. A little to spice things up. So it's not even a published piece. It's it's a monograph. And he's promoting what's called the conjunctive approach, which combines archaeology with ethnography and social anthropology. So basically, it's more like a fusion of archaeology and sociocultural, more so than there already was. Like he's He kind of recognized like, hey, archaeology is really starting to branch away. We need to bring it back in. He attacks these six prominent archaeologists without providing an example of how the conjunctive approach could work. 
So he like he like brought a gun to a gunfight, but didn't bring any ammo. And starts like shooting at people. I think he just brought his fists to a gunfight. Like, <laughs> <There you go. laughs> like he, he didn't even bring a gun. He's like, these like, look how smart I am. This is stupid, but like, you just have to trust me on it. And it's like, holy shit, dude! Like the balls on this dude. But ultimately, he got like run out of archaeology. He wasn't able to terminate the cultural historical approach. Like he just got shit on by these six prominent archaeologists dominating American archaeology. And like one of the key institutions at Carnegie, that's like, get out. Like we're done with you. Yes. You yell at the funding mechanisms and you yell at the people who in all sorts of regions, like Frank Roberts is, isn't he like the kind of Midwest guy and you have Kidder who's down in South America. So you're like, like drawing yourself out of a whole like a continent you're not gonna yeah. be able to work in by shitting on all these people he's like attacking the standard bearers for all these different cultural areas like he's hitting the top guy in every region like you're an idiot you're an idiot you're an idiot and they just run him out of the field because like they're the ones with all the students like taylor doesn't have any students he's not tenured anywhere yeah and it's a monograph like it's not even a published book it's like a pre-book <laughs> you know it's not and, even, yeah it's not even uh reviewed or anything but like even though he gets run out his idea of the conjunctive approach kind of starts getting adopted by other folks so like there's this big debate in the 50s called the ford spalding debate which was a series of articles between james ford and albert spalding over theoretical differences towards the approach of scientific inquiry in archaeology ford believed that artifact types were constructions that were imposed by archaeologists and not necessarily representative of the creators right so like modern day people applying their own beliefs as to what cultures in the past were doing with these materials which he's right turns out it's like yeah our idea of what a cup looks like might not be the same idea that someone's idea of a cup was in the past but spalding was way more like quantitative methods based in archaeology and believe archaeologists should try and reveal the emic approaches of objects like so they were both trying to get at the same thing through different methods so like ford is trying to be like well we need to do way more ethnography where spalding's like well math We'll do it for us. And it's like, they're just tacking past each other to do the same thing. And so um, Ford was the one really using this as an extension of, of the conjunct. Both of them were actually kind of applying the conjunctive approach, actually. They both kind of co-opted what Taylor was doing. It's like, yeah, culture historical is probably wrong. And used the baselines for Taylor's monograph to like argue in articles with these two guys. Because like the conjunctive approach called for collaboration between social anthropology and archaeological methods. So it's like taking the qualitative data gained from sociocultural and merging it with the quantitative data from archaeology rather than archaeologists trying to come up with the qualitative on their own and bring in their own biases outside of these worldviews that produce these cultures. The ford spalding debate, though, ended in the 1960s really with new archaeology. Yeah. What you could say is built built off of Stewart and kind of Julian Stewart's fieldwork and his adaptation stuff. Yeah. So it's kind of coming out of there that humans are adapting to their environment using these quantitative and qualitative approaches and ultimately trying to numbers everything is what at least starts out as it feels like. Yeah. And like Taylor is, is alive during this time. And he is, and like Lou Benford is really the, the, the standard bearer of new archaeology or processional archaeology. And like Taylor is like in the sixties, like writing is like, well, wait a minute. Well, I, I started this, like Lou Benford is doing what I did. And it's like, shut up. You didn't prove it. Like, yeah, you threw this idea out before you proved it and your idea got utilized. People recognized it and they were able to prove it on their own and they could, they wrote articles about it. Like you, you didn't do much with this man. Because like Lou Benford was also like, you got to use ethnography. And yeah. the whole idea of new archaeology was like very quantitative focused. It's like we need it. This is what archaeology is going to be a science with capital S. We're going to use the metric system. Everything's in meters now. Welcome to it. We're going to make squares. We're going to use grid paper. Rulers for everybody. And kill we're gonna calories. Yeah, calories. <laughs> like we're gonna we're gonna turn this shit into a science. And uh, but based on ethnography, right? Binford, I wish I could have met the guy because if you listen, go back and listen to Bob Kelly's episode. Because Bob Kelly talks about a Thanksgiving he spent with Binford. And it ends with a broken window in New Mexico. It's a great little uh, window into the past. 
Yeah. We should also mention David Clark in this sort of like the, he's the European Lou essentially, isn't he? Mm-hmm. The Cambridge. Yeah. So he, he promotes the, the processional archeology span in um, Cambridge and is kind of given the, they're both the bulldogs of processional archeology span is what I call them. I wouldn't call him the founding father, the founding fathers. They're the bulldogs. There's the ones who yeah. bully us into fucking doing science-based archaeology. Yeah. I think bully is a really good word. Yeah. They're it's, big, big personalities. And they get things done. They have it their way. Can yeah. we define processional archaeology for the for the audience? It's pretty, yeah, go for it, David. Like I'm asking if you guys could what, pretend I, on the audience who doesn't know what it is. Why don't you pretend I'm the audience that doesn't know what it is? Well, processional archaeology. Like I don't know the, the exact definition, but it's looking at like archaeology scientifically, like doing things like from a very data driven standpoint. Yes. Um, I don't know if there's like a, a full textbook definition of it, but. There's usually adaptation uh, thrown thrown into that too. Adaptation is kind of the key. Yeah. So the big one is yeah. Processual archaeology argues that ideas and theories mean nothing without any ability to prove them. This is the scientific approach, right? So it applied the scientific method to archaeology, emphasizing the need for objectivity when looking at the material record. And this is my personal gripe with processual archaeology because like they came up with the idea that an archaeologist can relieve themselves of all bias and study the archaeological record. Like you can go into these things and train people to come in with a clean slate. Like you show up to an archaeological dig and you just like empty all your knowledge of culture and how you use things and be able to study and identify what things were of the past. So like... When were they they pushing this? What, the 50s, 60s? 60s and 70s, yeah. Yeah, so like we weren't, you know, we weren't exactly where we are today with society. So there's a lot of objectivity that's missing. It was like one of those, like if you listen to the Joe Watkins episode when he talks about like when he was getting into archaeology and undergrad, like archaeologists told him because he was native, he couldn't do archaeology because he couldn't be unbiased towards the archaeological record. Like he came in knowing too much and therefore he couldn't be able to do archaeology because he was going to be too biased. And it was like, wait the fuck a minute. Like that's completely ridiculous that... And we talked about yeah. it in that episode, so I won't talk about it here. But it was just like one of those funny ideas that people thought early on that you could just empty yourself of all biases. And what Carlton's kind of hinting at is because so you have processional archaeology pop on the scene. Lou Brinford's a dick and just like yells at people. He can't write for shit. He writes like huge monographs and with a bunch of numbers and stuff like that. And then you have this very, very prominent critique of this idea, you know, coming off of the idea that archaeologists aren't biased and and things like that. So you have a big reaction to processional archaeology kind of arguing that humans aren't specifically numbers and they want to bring archaeology closer to anthropology because you can see it kind of veering away from it as the processional archaeology comes in. There is this backlash to things. I think it's after Lou dies, to be honest. Yeah, so like processionalism has its merits. Like it really did move us towards science like which i is i i believe correct like we need to standardize these we have to hypothesize tests like we can't just make claims about the past without testing them so it very much is needed and it standardized a lot of practices and methods and that's where we you know people criticize methods like well can you repeat this experiment how do you know this but that idea that connor said of like you can't be unbiased in the archaeological record created this there was like a critique of it so before we have like a whole new theoretical paradigm, and this is where I think personally what happens after new archaeology or processional archaeology, it's not really a new paradigm, but just a critique and realignment of processional archaeology. But I know other people would argue against that, but that's in my head how I see it because it's like, wait a minute, what's called post-processualism where postmodernism seeps into archaeology is, is really a critique of like, wait a minute. We are biased and we have to acknowledge that, but that doesn't mean it's to our disadvantage that some of our backgrounds can actually help us better understand the archaeology. So an indigenous person might be able to better identify what some of these tools are for or people that are local to the area, not necessarily indigenous. I'm like, there's a really good case study of archaeologists in the Alps who found, uh, it looks like a a dodecahedron, a a many-shaped giant dice looking thing. Maybe I think it might have been like a D15 or D12. <laughs> it's something. And and they like showed it to locals. So they didn't know what it is. 
And then uh, like a local grandmother saw it and laughed and like came back. She had one and it's, it's used to knit mittens. And so this woman living in the Alps who makes mittens was able to recognize something from an archaeologist from like Rome who's doesn't who's not accustomed to making mittens couldn't identify right. So there's it's not just you have to be Samoan to understand Samoan culture, but like interacting with locals is a big part of it. I think you're correct because that's that's probably where you exist and theoretically right is you're kind of in the your processual your post processualist because you um, but you have scientific methods but there are people in archaeology who are going more postmodern and they are going down that rabbit hole. Which is, you know, to each, yeah. to each their own. It's not how I would approach the past, but there are people, and that post-processual critique starts that kind of jump into yeah. the postmodern approaches to things. It's like when I went to the the Flint Epic Festival. Like, I learned so much more about lithics and like ancient stone tool like manufacture from like working with live people flint napping from all different perspectives of it that like, I was like, Oh, so that's what that would be for. And like more than I've ever learned from an archeologist, which is, I mean, in terms of like understanding lithics at a site and stuff, I'm going to learn that from an archeologist, but like, how are they doing this? How are they doing that? How the flakes form and things like that. that I learned that from flint napping. So that's a pretty post processual way of looking at stuff like, Oh, yeah. like, yeah. And, and so post processual archeology is sometimes called interpretive archeologies. And this is what kind of drives me up the wall. You have like post processual, you have processual, which is new archeology science based. And then they attribute like indigenous archeology, span gender archeology, span like all these other different archeologies to post processual and like kind of going back. Like, I don't think post processual archeology is necessarily its own theory. I really just think it's just a readjustment of processual. I'm like, no, there are women in the past. No, there are other people in the past. We just got to remember that and and do that. Cause it's not like women didn't exist before in the archeological record before processual archeology. span yeah. If that makes sense. It's like, so that's where I come from of like, I don't, do they, so they like pigeonhole you. Like if you say you're an indigenous archeologist, people start like rolling their eyes, like, Oh, he's doing some sort of like postmodern approach, but you still use science and, and data. Yeah in your in your research <laughs> and most archaeologists like people that are like ascribed post-processual now i do think there are adherents or i do know that there are people that would like well i'm a post-processual archaeologist they want to distance themselves i'm like the only difference is like processual archaeology is the use of data you're still using data so like i don't see it as a paradigm shift i think it's i call it the post-processual critique like wait a second we, we got to f- remember we're dealing with people like people aren't numbers we got to bring the anthropology back and remember that. So I just see it as one giant yeah. theory that we've been doing since the sixties and just kind of, that's how I yeah. see it. And like, I'm pr- probably a minority in that. Cause I'm also one of those folks. I don't ascribe myself to a particular theory. Like I don't, I know some of my colleagues are like, I'm a Marxist. I do Marxist archeology. span That's how I see the world. People are energy. Fuck the capitalists. And I'm like, no, I just use what I need to understand the archaeological record that I'm digging. (laughs) There's more than like, you don't have to subscribe to just one. I think that's something that we all get bogged down with in, in school. Like I have several grad students that message me on Instagram that are like, I don't know like which one to pick. And I'm like, you don't have to pick one. Like, yeah, I'm probably super postmodernist in what I do, but like, like degree wise, I'm extremely processualist. Like I can't. We came from very like Wyoming and you, you came from Tennessee, which is like also like David comes from very hard people. Very processual schools. Like Wyoming is a very processual school. Like, but they still do data and work with living people. Like shit. Todd Servell works with the Doha. Bob did all this stuff. Like they still did kind of what this post-processual critique was like calling for more people to do, but it's really this bogged down. Like people get really way too like revolt, like stuck in this idea. Well, processional archeologists do science and post-processualists do interpretation. And it's like, you guys are all doing the same fucking thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to mention that like what you're studying matters too. So like if you want to take Marxist approaches to something, you're probably talking about larger scale societies. And I've said this on the show before. So there, it's okay to change your approach and your theoretical understanding of things based on what you're studying. I have, I see zero problem with that. 
Absolutely. Exactly. And a solid example of that too is like if you're doing historical archaeology on someone's mansion from 1750, you can very easily do Marxist archaeology. Be like, wow, this person had slaves, like he had a presentation. Well, I wonder what the power dynamics were here. But if you want to look at stone tools and an archaic site in the Great Basin, like really all you can go with is behavioral ecology. Be like, okay, well, yeah. they wanted to eat this many calories and fuck. So, like, <laughs> yeah. like well, what else do you have? <laughs> and stone tools don't come in pink and blue. Like, you can't figure, like, there's no, you can't really do gender archaeology. Like a lot of that stuff to do interpretive archaeology when you're just working off of stone tools is fucking impossible. And it just becomes like yeah. way more not necessarily evidence-based. Like you can do – and that's, you know, that's where Wyoming succeeds really well. It's like they do paleo and archaeology. There's only so much theory you need yeah. to count rocks and bones talk about divisions of labor, but you can't necessarily talk about a body. Well, this pile of demitage had a better view of the river than this one. So we can tell that this person was definitely a man. Yeah. Can't do that. You know, <laughs> yeah, you so a lot of it's just left to, I mean, yeah, that that's, it depends on the archaeological record you're working in. Depends on the place. It, it, there's also like the feminist archaeology and then there's queer archaeology is like a big thing too, which I've been seeing yeah. recently as well. And people are like, well, we should talk more about this. And well, you, we can, but again, all we have is rocks. So like, yeah. what do it's we not, do? like? Yeah. It's not, it's not that we don't want to study it. It's that it's hard to do good science and study it in hunter gatherer populations. Paleo right. But if yeah. you're looking at like a plantation or something like that, you can definitely do that. Like, yeah. yeah like you sure. know, something more recent. Yeah. Yeah. We and can't figure out who was sexuality or anything like that. Yeah. We can't get sexual sexual that Lewis and Clark were gay. That's fine. But in the archaeological record, I don't know what to say to that. Probably, maybe. You know, it's like there's only so much you can do in certain archaeological contexts, depending on the record that you have. So most of us work. We all work in an archaeological record over 500 years ago. You two work further in time than I do. But even still, there's only so much I can figure out based on earth lodges and corn. Like I don't, yeah. you know, I, yeah. I don't deal in historic archaeology where there you can figure out more of these you know quote unquote post-processual archaeologies that can be applied if anyone knows of someone that does queer archaeology yeah hit us up please let us know because i know nothing yeah, about it. it yeah we should actually get that on the show because yeah. i would love to know more about it like examples and stuff yeah 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 well we just we just, just out of ourselves as straight man archaeologists <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for listening to us we kind of went a little long but um, I'm going to recommend two books for y'all to understand anthropology theory and archaeology theory one of them is Visions of Culture an introduction to anthropological theories and theorists by Jerry D. Moore he's awesome um, he really puts stuff in bite-sized pieces and is easy to devour don't read Bordeaux don't translations they suck read jerry d Moore. Uh, another book is archaeological theory and practice by patricia urban and edward shortman that's what we use at our um, archaeology class to to study the history of that so once again that's bite size those are very easy to um, consume if you're interested in studying this further yeah and i'll throw up as well, the theory books I got at Boulder and also the ones we used at Indiana. I don't know the ones in Indiana, but like there's a lot of different theory books. Some are better than others. And then um, honestly, Archaeology 7th Edition by Bob Kelly and DHT is not a bad intro to archaeology book. It, it has all the theories. It's it's like a children's high school like textbook. Like it has yeah, it's, pretty, it's, pretty it's pretty good. Like for freshmen, like it is an excellent like here are the vocab words, here are the questions you should think about, here are the great pictures. And if you want to do Mormon archaeology, might I suggest the book of Mormon? And if you would like to do behavioral ecology, may I suggest uh the origin of species and uh the God Delusion by uh Richard Dawkins, I guess. Yeah. So we'll throw all the books. <laughs> yep. Like, reuse, subscribe, send us emails, all that shit. Send it to us. We love you. We're we'll getting your back. emails. We, we just we will respond to them. Thank you all so much for giving us feedback. It's been very critical, constructively. It's their nice emails to read. And yeah, God bless you. We love everything you send us. We really appreciate it. And if you're listening on the All Show feed, please stop let's subscribe and download our show we can i can see the numbers everybody i have access i have the power we still got followers in kazakhstan we want to boost those numbers though so <laughs> let us you know tell all your kazakh friends about us and with that we number are number one podcast in all kazakhstan <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're getting canceled all right <laughs>
Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. All right, everybody. So now it is time. Connor, what joke do you have for us this evening? So I just found out the CEO of IKEA is the new president of Sweden. He's still assembling his cabinet. You didn't even give us time to think on that one. <laughs> yeah. I guess it wasn't really a question. It was just a statement. Yeah, that was good. I like yeah. that one. That was good. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.